Hey, welcome back to The Urban Monk. Dr. Pedram Shojai here to talk about water. One of the most pressing issues of our day um, hasn't been pressing hard enough in most people's lives, so we don't really realize how much shit we're in. And uh, it's going to be a bigger and bigger deal. Um, and one of the best places to look for you know solutions, if you will, looking at this water crisis is the country of Israel. These guys landed right after World War II, plopped down in the middle of a desert uh, with very little water, and we're told this is where you build your <laughs> build your country, build your your new life. And so they have some very good solutions uh, for water and with water, and they've been exporting them because they've gotten so damn good at it. So today with me is Seth Siegel, the author of a book called Let There Be Water, who's right in the crosshairs of this whole thing, working with some really cool companies out of Israel, bringing this technology around the world. Um, and really, you know, going after one of the biggest problems we are going to face and trying to nip it in the bud before it becomes real ugly. So Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Petram. Good to be on the show. Yeah. So how did you get into water? Like, what's your backstory? Um, like, it, it, where'd you come from? I'm, a, I'm really um, an accidental water person. Um, I was a liberal arts major. I wasn't a uh, uh, civil engineer or anything like that. I, I uh, simply am an engaged citizen. I like reading about current affairs. And a bunch of years ago, I started reading about growing global water scarcity. And it gave me a sense of concern. And I was wondering, what are our public officials doing about this? especially after I read a U.S. government intelligence report that had been declassified that said that 60% of the world's landmass and billions of people would be affected by growing scarcity and that it would, could lead to higher food prices, global instability, failed states, and maybe even require a rethinking of America's global defense architecture. And when I heard all that, I thought, okay, so what are we doing about it? And to my shock, the answer was not a lot. And part of the reason it was not mm. a lot is because not a lot of people knew about it. So I figured, okay, this is what citizens do. So I got myself involved and next thing I knew, I ended up writing a book. That was not part of the original plan, but it happened and then the book became a big success and uh, and now I'm, now I'm a water guy. <laughs> now you're a water guy. Yeah, I mean, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's, uh, you know, you got a uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, giving you a, a, a plug on the cover. Um, and, you know, this is something that needs to be talked about more. And, and living in Southern California, we, we have a couple scares here and there where like, you know, water's running out. We live in an era now where, you know, the city of uh, Cape Town in South Africa is going down to day zero, although they, they've moved that line a couple times. But it's just starting to rear its ugly head. So how bad is it? You've been looking at this for a while. Yep. Uh, and, and I'll tell you something. The, the extraordinary story that I tell is uh, I use Israel as the model, but the reality is every country could be having a, could have a very good water outcome, just like Israel does. But you need to focus on it. It needs to be considered one of the top issues for your society, and a key part of good governance. And and so while we've done a pretty good job, I would say, from an environmental point of view, of raising awareness of water quality, we've done a much less good job of raising awareness of water quantity. And it's that shortfall between what's available and what's needed and it's going to grow worse is, is what has gotten my attention and my time. And the reason it'll get worse, by the way, is because we're, if, if we're pinched for food already, uh, you know, with 7 billion people, when we rise to 9, 10, 11 billion people and people who have more affluence live more water intensive lifestyles because of diet mostly and energy use, um, we're, we're really going to get cooked. And then you, you add into that climate change, which is going to reduce the amount of available water 
And I could see a very, very scary couple of decades coming ahead of us. Yeah. So we hear about things here in California, say, you know, it's always the, obviously the almonds fault, right? Because they're way too, way too water intensive in their farming. And sure, to a certain extent, that makes some sense. Uh, Hot showers, industry, like what are the really big culprits in water consumption in most urban areas? Well, well, you know, almonds, I think, are wrongfully pointed a finger at. And it's it's a little bit, to some degree, it's laziness by the media by taking a, a whipping boy. The truth of the matter is all food requires large amounts of water to grow, all food. So that cup of coffee in the morning it requires gallons and gallons of water to grow the coffee bean. And not even, not even counting the water required to uh, to transport it or requiring the water to wash the cup. And the glass of wine you have with dinner requires more, probably close to two and a half, three dozen gallons of water. So, so we, we are giving ourselves a good time when we make believe like, oh, it's just almonds. But the, 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 the major uses of water are about 70 to uh, 95% of every country's fresh water is used for agriculture. California uses 85% of its water for, for agriculture. Um, uh, energy production is the second largest use of water, and and uh, commercial use, urban life, is the third largest area. And then there's lots of odds and ends. So well, it's a good idea to take a shorter shower. That is a good idea. That really isn't where the game is and where the savings are. Yep. So looking at the uh, the hinges that swing big doors, let's talk about agriculture and what's happening in Israel and how they had to rethink their use of water. Well, they, they didn't. They, I would say that they started initially by rethinking it, and and it's not accurate to say that this starts after World War II, um, as as you know, not to go into t- such deep history. But Israel, Jews have had a connection to uh, the land of Israel, obviously, since the time of you know thousands of years, since the time before of Jesus. Jesus himself was was a Jewish resident of uh, of of the area. And, um, and in the time of, the, of Jesus, in the time of the Bible, there was a robust amount of water. Scholars believe that there were between four and five million people who lived there then, which required a lot of water to grow food for them. So, so it, was a, it was a water-rich area. And then, then after the expulsion of the Jews from the area, there was a period of a couple of 1,000, 1,500, 1,800 years of real desolation where the land was left in bad shape and water resources were inappropriately husbanded. And what ended up happening is around the 1880s, there begins this political movement, the Zionist movement, which really gains force and fervor right around the turn of the last century. And significant numbers of Jews start coming there. And they have an, uh, they have an ideological connection to the land, not just Judaism as a religion, but ideologically via Zionism. And their idea is, of course, there's a political revolution afoot to create a state. But there's also a scientific and sociological revolution afoot. And that leads to all kinds of new thinking about water. Then by the 1930s, which is where I start my book, Let There Be Water, in the 1930s, what ends up really happening is the, the, the realization that, that this is before the, before the Nazis have done their, their evil deeds in Europe, but there's the realization <clears throat> that that to fulfill Zionist ideology, millions of people will end up living in that area. So they start thinking as for early as 1933 and 34 about how they can make what is a, a water scarce area into a water abundant one. 
Then, then as you indicate, Israel's formed after World War II, and then then, they, then it's off to the races. Israel takes the the, uh, the creation and husbanding of their water resources as seriously as they do their military and their immigration and and anything else that's key to their survival of the state. So, what has to happen? For agriculture to shift, if we're talking about scarcity of water, uh, there have to be different ways of deploying that water. I mean, obviously, for almonds, like they flood flood the trees and flood the fields. Um, you know, if you don't have that much water and you're in the desert, it's probably a bad idea. So, what are these guys doing? Well, you you put your finger on something important. I mean, what they start thinking about right away is a multifaceted approach to thinking about water in a new and importantly new way. First of all, they develop a culture of conservation, which is integrated into the school system, integrated into daily life. Uh, being a good citizen is obviously paying your taxes and not littering, but it also is being smart about water. But in addition, because of the fact that they develop part of this, this revolution of science that I talked about, they start developing all kinds of innovative approaches in, in, in a lot of different uh, areas of technology and science, and one of which is to think about how we can rethink agriculture. And since, and since fields have been irrigated since the time of the pharaohs and the times of, of the Babylonians and the, with the Tigris and Euphrates and the Nile rivers overflowing their banks and flooding the fields, the, the Zionists and the Israelis, after the state is formed in 1948, start saying, you know, this is crazy. We're wasting enormous amounts of water. And, and from that idea, uh, drip irrigation is born. And drip irrigation, which may be familiar to some of your... Uh, listeners, is the most efficient way of irrigating crops. You lose almost no water to evaporation, whereas with flood irrigation, you lose as much as 60%. And with center pivot, you know, sprinkler irrigation, you lose 35 to 50% of your, of your water to evaporation. So this is, this is a game changer because it saves so much water in the largest consuming area, which is agriculture. So you're doing drip irrigation, getting the water to where it's supposed to be. The intended result is to, you know, obviously deliver said water to, you know, the plant. Uh, and then at that point, there's this whole other thing with, you know, the water table and what happens to the water as, um, you know, it starts to run off as well. And that to me is really interesting. Well, what's, what's, what happens is, that I'm, again, I'm an American writer and I live in New York. I'm not an Israeli, but but I'm an admirer of what they've done. And I, I, when I, I talk about in the book uh, about uh, drip irrigation in, in really referential terms, because I, I've come to conclude that it's actually a great savior, not just of water, but it addresses issues of carbon fuel usage, gender issues, uh, uh, food insecurity, because a, a drip irrigated field, remarkably enough, produces on average at least 30% more yield so less water, less fertilizer, same seed, but 30% bonus in, in, uh, in yield. So it produces more food, more income for the farmer. And also because it's so water saving in places, not Israel, but in places where uh, agriculture is driven by people going back and forth, carrying buckets of water, which is almost always the women doing that, it, it transforms the gender relationship because women now have more time to do other things than be fetching water. And they also... Now the, the yield is larger, so they have a surplus food, and they can sell that, and it starts off a, a, an economic development cycle that's very positive for, for African, Asian, and South American villages. Amazing. What about the cost getting into this thing? Um, is, does it cost more to get these drip irrigation tubes? Is there more labor, more capital involved in deploying this thing? Well, yes, there is. Uh, there's more labor because you have to lay it. Uh, but on the other hand, with, with flood irrigation, you have to level the field. It has to be at about a 1% slope. 
uh, and you have to carry the water. You have to get the water to the field if it's not there. So it's so it's not that it's without labor. It's it's still hard labor. Uh, but yes, it's more expensive because you have to put the the tubes into the field, and although they can last for up to twenty years, you need to have the capital in the first place to to put them in, and that's why many developing country governments are giving no interest uh, long term loans to farmers to put them in. It's why NGOs are putting this into developing countries uh, in small villages. It's it's really it's the gift that keeps giving. Well, it seems like there's also some other things. I mean, the runoff, the the wasted water, but also maybe like even the stagnant water with mosquitoes and some of the things that, you know, come as sequelae to, you know, flooding fields, uh, especially in the developing world. That, that seems like a game changer. Yeah, I think that that's true. As I said, as a name, I said in the book, name a social problem and or, or a scientific problem. And it seems as if that drip irrigation is, is part of that virtuous circle. Um, in terms of wastewater, and this is another fascinating area, something that Israel leads the world in, and by far and away, is um, in 1952, and I trace the history of this in my book, in 1952, uh, the country was four years old. They were pretty much bankrupt. They had just finished fighting the War of Independence, and they were absorbing such a large number of immigrants that the country actually doubled in population in four years' time, which is kind of unfathomably large number of people, new schools, new hospitals, new roads, new homes that had be built. And most of them came impoverished after a, a brutal world war. Many of them from North Africa, because the European Jewry was destroyed, but some from Europe, Europe, a remnant of survivors from Europe as well. Uh, North Africa, Iraq, uh, Iran, other places like that is where they came from. And, and in 1952, the leaders of the country started thinking about two ideas, which at the time I'd have to say were science fiction. The first of those was to take all of the sewage in the country figure out a way to treat it to an ultra high pure level so it'd be as good as drinking water, but to not use it for drinking water because they assumed people would be sort of psychologically grossed out by that. And they built over a period of a number of years a parallel national water infrastructure system so that all of the crops could be appropriately irrigated with ultra pure uh, treated wastewater. And that, that's been a game changer because that way you don't have to use up your freshwater resources to, to be doing that. The other thing that they did, which is, was even more science fiction at the time, was to do what they called desalting the sea. And beginning in the early 50s, they, they started doing a series of experiments. By 1964, they built their first desalination plant. And today, the world's largest, most energy efficient, lowest cost per gallon of water uh, desalination plant in the world is based in Israel. The second, is, by the way, is based in Southern California, but built by the same Israeli company. So it's it's a it's a very special technology uh, in terms of desalination because to desalt the sea is not something easy to do and not easy to do it on an economically smart basis. Yeah, the things that I hear about that is obviously you know the cost of energy to extract you know the, the, this this fresh water out of the seawater, and then the second part would be the brine, this kind of toxic, salty sludge that we don't know what to do with. I'm curious what the uh, Israeli solution to that would be. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that either of those bear scrutiny. I mean, I I, I have heard I have heard that before. I mean, I, I speak pretty widely, and I would say that it's. Um, you know, in the Q and A, I can pretty much count on someone asking that question. But but if you really examine it more closely, it, it doesn't it doesn't bear uh, scrutiny. For example, the amount of energy required to provide enough desalinated water for an entire family of four for all their uses—you know, cleaning, cooking, drinking, watering their lawn, 
running the dishwasher, washing machine, all that, the amount of energy needed for that comes to about the same amount of energy as is needed for a standard size refrigerator. And yet you wouldn't suggest to anybody uh, in this modern era that people get rid of their refrigerators and go back, back to ice boxes. You know, in fact, probably I would bet that a lot, a lot, a lot of people um, have refrigerators that are more empty than full and, and burn energy nonetheless. And, and, and so it's like, and, and then if you throw in people's air conditioners, which are totally, I mean, I grew up without air conditioning in a hot city, you know, it's totally unnecessary, but nobody is giving up their air conditioning these days. So I would argue that for water security, it's probably a good idea to, to have as an insurance policy to have a, a, a good, robust desalinated plan available to you. And then in terms of the brine, you know, uh, Petra, it's, a, it's a big ocean out there. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of water out there. And to put the brine that was in the water back into the water, really, if it's diffused properly, really doesn't change very much. And let me once again push back with another point, which is, uh, you know, if you really want to stop the, the salinization of the sea, the best thing you could do would be to blow up all the dams. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of dams all over the world, right? And what does a dam do? It stops the flow of fresh water. And where did that water, where was that water going to before it was stopped? Ultimately, it goes to the sea. So yeah. if, if yeah. the Mediterranean, well, that's, for example- That's an upstream it, solution. No, right. that's a really interesting point, but it's an upstream solution. If we got better with water, then we wouldn't have to dam as much of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If we, if we used our water smarter and irrigated smarter, we wouldn't need to dam as much of it. If we got smarter with energy production, we wouldn't need to dam water as much. So, that, so that there's, there's, this is an ongoing benefit, uh, but, but, but it's easy to point a finger at any given technology. But when you put it into context of other existing technologies that we have said we accept and no one questions, I, I think it, it starts to m make clear that, that it's not as problematical as it may seem at first. So what's it look like now? I mean, I have a picture of your book in my hand right now, and there's this crazy looking desert in the backdrop of like, you know, it looks like sand dunes, like the Sahara Desert. And right below it is this lush field of some sort of crop. Um, and there's a stark contrast, right? Of life and, you know, lifeless. So what examples do you have of what's happened in Israel with like, you know, land turning into kind of more, you know, uh, more, pl more plots of land that we can farm or more inhabitable land um, that we can learn from? Well, it's, it's, a, I, I love the fact that you pulled that picture out to talk about. It's such a wonderful, it's a, it's a picture that is so vivid that you can really say to yourself, what am I looking at? And, and, and what we're looking at is, is the heart of the desert, but right there in the heart of the desert are acres upon acres upon acres of greenhouses and open fields. So how in the world is that possible? First of all, how is that possible because of the heat? And more importantly, how is that possible? Because desert sand is sterile. You can't grow anything in it. So how, what's going on here? So this brings together a bunch of the things that we've been talking about. So first of all, first of all, I need to tell you that Israel is the only country in the world that ended the 20th century with less desert land than it started the century with. I think that's pretty amazing. So they have a policy, the, the scientific word is desertification, and to turn back the desert has fantastic economic and sociological benefits. In most of the world, deserts are growing and people are being displaced and it's changing the ecology of countries. Now what happens in Israel is they've developed special seeds 
that thrive on brackish water. And in the desert, there's lots and lots of brackish, that is highly salty water. And they, they are able to plant these melons and peppers and cucumbers and tomatoes, irrigate them with drip irrigation, irrigate them with this brackish desert water, which has no other value and no other use because you can't drink it, it's too salty. And it produces fabulous fruits and vegetables, which are, are consumed by the people of Israel. And it even has a multi, multi-billion dollar annual ag- agricultural export industry as a result of it. And to make matters even better, it turns out that when you irrigate a plant with salty water, the plant responds to it by producing glucose to wick away the salt. So the salt gets driven out of the plant, but the glucose remains. So Israeli fruits and vegetables are actually very, very sweet. And you can tell when you're having a a desert-grown melon or pepper or tomato because it it feels not so uncommonly sweet that it feels uncomfortable, but it has a delicious taste to it because of the fact that it's been desert-grown with with brackish water using usually drip irrigation. And on top of all of that, because it's been grown in the desert where pests can't survive, remarkably, you don't have to use any pesticides. So it's naturally organic. Are they using well water for this brackish water? I mean, obviously, there's no you know surface water really in the desert well, it's, to it's, speak it's, of, so it, they're just drilling down. It's 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 well water in the sense that um, this brackish water is um, sometimes called fossil water. It's from it's from seas from mil- millions and millions of years ago uh, that were fresh that, that had fresh water, but that because it was sitting in the ground, it's from a period of time when that area, I'm sorry, that area of the world was covered by seas, then it receded, then there was fresh water, and then the fresh water got captured Mm. in these geological pockets. And they were surrounded, though, by all kinds of minerals. And over the millennia upon millennia that the water has been sitting in these pockets, um, minerals and such got, uh, got infiltrated into the water. And so that leads to sort of a minerally, highly salty kind of uh, residue into the water. So they drill, they drill for this. And um, it's, it's, it, I, I interviewed the man who actually created this desert uh, brackish water uh, wells. And he told me that now, you know, now, of course, he's seen as a, a genius. But when he started, he couldn't get funding for it. He said everybody thought he was, everyone thought he was crazy. He said everyone, mm. everyone said, you're going to find well water in the desert? How, that's usable? What are you, crazy? Then finally, then, then he drills and he finds all these these brackish deposits of water, and everyone says, "Okay, great." So we just wasted all this. <laughs> we just we just wasted all this money to find water that's totally unusable. And then he partnered with these Israeli uh, uh, seed co-op to develop seeds that thrive with with salty water, and and it became uh, a huge win for everybody. That's amazing. So now, not only are they exporting uh, produce, uh, it seems like I've, somewhere I read that they were also, you know, net, starting to be a net exporter of water to the region in the middle of this desert. Uh, but they're also exporting this IP. So I know that there's a company doing this in California. There, are, you know, there are parts of India. Tell me about how this win is now becoming a win for people all over the planet. Yes, it is. Um, Israel now exports. Uh, some part of its water technology to a eye-poppingly large number of countries, 150 countries around the world, including countries that are formally in a state of war with Israel. And I can tell you, this does not include Iran. Iran and <laughs> Israel do not have any trade. But, but countries that you know, publicly say terrible things about Israel at the UN or elsewhere uh, are very happy to welcome Israeli 
businessmen and businesswomen uh, with prior arrangement uh, and with special airport lounges to come in and sell and service and train them on how to make use of these really world-changing water devices, uh, whether it's to fix pipes without having to totally tear up your streets and and replumb it, whether it's to fix your agriculture, whether to have a more efficient approach towards wastewater, whether it's to decentralize your wastewater treatment. Uh, all of these uh, innovations are coming out of Israel. I'm not, and I don't want to suggest that only Israel thinks about water issues and water innovation. But for a country of not even 9 million people, it really is kind of startling how virtually every important uh, technological tool to address water scarcity is either invented there or significantly improved there. So when we look at the problems California is having, for instance, how quickly can we adapt and learn and, and really retrofit our farms and our ranches and anything else to take advantage of this kind of technology? Yeah. So, so I think, uh, you know, among the things that Israel does obviously is technology, but they also have an, a, a brilliant form of water governance, which we don't have in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, I've been an advocate for all kinds of rethinking of, of, of uh, legal structure in the U.S. They have a fabulous culture of mentality of conservation, which is also helpful. But depending upon the technology, we could rethink all of our water needs in the United States in as little as 10 years. We could fix our pipes. In, in, I mean, they're talking about sending 50 years now to fix our pipes, which is a, which is a code, code way of saying we're never going to fix the pipes. But um, we could fix our pipes within 10 years and we could rethink our farms in, in, in somewhere between three and seven years. So um, we, could be, we could be reusing our wastewater in our dry parts of the country. Um, it's not necessary in the wet parts, but in the dry parts it is. And we could be installing desalination plants in, from the time we get the get-go, two to three years. If I could just add that the, the desalination plant that's the largest in the Western Hemisphere, the one that was built by the Israelis, in Carlsbad, California, not far from San Diego. Um, it's really quite a story um, that it took over 10 years, over 10 years to build that plant. And it cost over a billion dollars to build that plant. And even though the Israelis started after Carlsbad, was, the, the process began, they finished building their plant in a couple of years. They delivered the plant for under $400 million. So why, how? And the answer is that the permitting process, the litigation process, and so forth, was so much more complex in the United States than it was in Israel. And this leads me to one of my favorite interviews. I did 220 interviews for the book, and, and I had this one terrific interview with a man who was a water veteran there. Um, and, and I asked him what he found the most surprising thing about the United States, his water profile. And he said, he said what I find most surprising is that you folks can't seem to get started unless you figured out that everything is perfect. He said, our attitude is we have a pretty good idea how it's going to finish. Let's get going. And if it's not perfect, we'll fix it. And next time we'll make it even better. And the time after that, we'll make it even better after that. Hmm. And he said, and so he said, and that culture of innovation and risk-taking, he says, is part of why we've succeeded in, in fixing our water. You know, in the United States, for example, in the United States, we lose about a third of our water in our cities to leaks. And that's very expensive. It's not just expensive water, but we, we transport that water. We clean that water. It costs us enormous amounts of carbon fuel to do that. 18% of California's entire electricity usage last year, 18% with all the air conditioners, all the computers, all the refrigerators, 
18% of California's water usage, electricity usage last year, was to transport, clean, and heat water. So just think about that. Think about all the water that gets lost <laughs> and how much carbon fuel you could save and how much money you could save if you had a watertight system. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it's, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone and you get to the point where, you know, it starts to get a lot more interesting. <laughs> Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're, we're at a point now where everyone's got to pay attention to this and we're looking to people who have been for a while and really have taken a quantum leap in this. It's fascinating. I mean, we're, I know we're going to be tr uh, tracking with some of these companies. Uh, our, our show producer from uh, Prosperity, Carl, has really been fully on board with this. And we're looking at game-changing solutions that can radically transform the world. And look, you know, if you don't have water, uh, you will kill for it. And this is going to be a huge problem unless we intercept it on a global scale. So these types of stories make me very happy. And these are the types of stories that I want to you know, follow for the, the years to come. I'd like to tell you that um, I'd like to share with you something that happened. Um, I, as I mentioned, I've been sp spoken fairly widely around the world. The book is out not only in English, but in quite a number of international editions. It's out in about 50 countries now. And I had an interesting experience with, uh, with one of my uh, with a questioner from one of my audiences. She said, she stood up and she said to the audience, she said, I, I'm, I don't know if any one of you others have read this book already. She said, I have. And she said, and I want to tell you something. She said, I read most every environmental book I can get my hands on. And she said, I always finish them very depressed. It seems hopeless. It seems like we're going to have a terrible future. It seems like the world's coming to an end. And she said, in Seth Siegel's book, she said, mm. I recommend you to read it because it's optimistic. It tells you, it tells you that there could be a happy ending. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to kiss that woman, you know, uh, but it was too many <laughs> stairs up the, up the uh, you know, she was far, far in the back of the auditorium. But, but I really wanted to kiss the woman because she got, it she got it exactly right. That's exactly what the point of my book is, is that, is that yes, we have enormous problems, but they're not, they're not insurmountable. And we know this because there is a proof positive case study that a country that is smaller than America, that is not nearly, not even a fraction as wealthy as America, that doesn't have as many great engineering institutions as America, has figured out a way in the middle of a desert, in the middle of a fifth year of a drought, to be water abundant. So the people live there as if they're living in London or New York. And I think that that's a model for the world, particularly for the affluent parts of the world. But we're not getting going. We haven't started soon enough, and we're going to pay a big price. So when you talk about Cape Town, Cape Town is a Western city. And Cape Town has, has this problem because they decided to sit on their hands and not get started, and, and, and they're paying a price for it yeah. now. But they didn't have to. They didn't have to. It wasn't necessary. Yeah. Well, in the old days, in ancient Egypt, when there wasn't enough water, it was obviously, you know, God's fault or, you know, we didn't do something to please the gods. And, you know, those, those days have come and gone, right? Like we understand that, you know, there's going to be scarcity of water. We understand that climate change is going to change uh, the output and, you know, so the volume of water that drops. And so we also, you know, God gave us a brain. <laughs> so we, if we know what to do and we uh, don't do it, then we're fools. And I see a lot of that in our chat threads from our, our last film is a lot of these people are just paralyzed into this doom or gloom. Uh, you know, it's too late. We got to roll over and die mentality. And like, man, there's nothing that pisses me off more because it's like, get the hell off, up off your ass and get to work doing something positive. And this right here is a positive innovation and a solution we could get behind right now. Solar energy. It's a good thing. Let's do that. Right. So, well, amen. A a amen. And you know what else? The last third of my book is really even not really about water. 
It's about geopolitics. And I call that part of the book hydro diplomacy. Because what I talk about is how everyone talks about how water, the wars of the 21st century will be fought over water. And I don't buy that. I actually think the opposite. I think that water will open the door to regional cooperation, to coexistence projects, and, and, and new relationships, both economic and political. And again, I use as my example for that Israel. Israel, there's no one who's got more contentious neighbors than Israel does. And yet, They've used water with the Palestinians. They provide more than half of the water the Palestinians consume in the West Bank in their homes. They provide water for the Palestinians in Gaza, even though they give it to the Hamas government there. They are giving a large amount of water to the Kingdom of Jordan. They provided training for Egyptian farmers. And this is open doors that would not have been open otherwise for Israel. And I think that that's a model that everybody could be thinking about and using. Rather than talking about water being a source of conflict, talk about water being a source of, co of coexistence and cooperation. This might sound cheesy, but you know it shows that I have young kids at home. Is you, know, you you watch Jungle Book, and even the law of the jungle was you know there's this thing called Peace Rock, and you know if if there's not enough water, uh, the animals are not allowed to you know the predators aren't allowed to eat the prey, and there's a place where they could all come to the watering hole because that's like the most common denominator of life is you don't have water, you don't have life. And so this is really interesting. It might be a galvanizing force much to your, to your point versus this thing that, you know, we're, you know, we're hearing all the time is going to cause all sorts of conflict and strife. It'll actually bring people together. And um, look, I'm very, I'm very happy that this is happening. I'm very thankful that this solution is now starting to get exported. And these are the types of stories I love. So uh, the book is called Let There Be Water um, by Seth Siegel, uh, who has spent a fair amount of his life looking at this stuff now and really chasing down the story and getting a real good understanding of what's happening behind the scenes. I highly recommend reading the book and I highly recommend getting involved in some way because, you know, like it or not, these are the days that are in front of us and it's on us to be a part of innovative solutions. And so I ask every one of you to do your part. Seth, I want to thank you for the work that you've done and your time. Thank you. And I'd add in only that, uh, you know, there's a lot to be done. I'm, uh, I'm a one man band and I'm constantly looking for friends and partners and mentors. Uh, for those who are on Twitter, I'm at, at Seth M. Siegel. For those who want to reach me via email, maybe feel free to share my email with them. Uh, I think of this as my life's work, and uh, and uh, it's something that if we do this right, we're going to have a very good 50, 100 years ahead of us. And if we do this wrong, then there's going to be lots and lots of problems. Yep, yep. But it's in front of us now. So, you know. <laughs> and thank, thank you for giving me the opportunity to use the Urban Monk to talk about it. It's a bit. Thank oh, you. Happy to do so. Let me know what you think. I will see you in the next show. It's Dr. Pedram Shojai, the Urban Monk.